Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning. Uh, thanks for bringing the church into this YMCA gymnasium on a day, no less, when you got one hour less sleep. So we won't talk about that, but I'm really glad that you are here. Uh, we are diving into 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. In fact, the scripture verses that were being referenced there on the screen in that little opening video, like been looking forward to getting to this spot in this letter. And so if you're new uh, to the book of 2 Corinthians, as we've been studying this over the last few weeks, it's this letter that Paul writes to a church in this uh, growing metropolis that is Corinth, this very influential city. He's helped start a church there but he's no longer there physically present with them. And so he's writing this series of letters. We got 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians to kind of correct some things, to love them, to care for them, to sort of pastor them from afar. And so we've been making our way through this. And so I want to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first six verses this morning. Just this glorious text uh, that really... Um, Man, by, by verse five and particularly verse six, where Paul is just kind of this crescendo moment. So excited to get into that. So I want you to have that text in front of you. So if you brought a Bible, turn there. If you didn't, there are paperback Bibles on those back tables. You can grab one of those. It starts on page 1067 and then over to the next page. Or as always, get your phone out, go to cpwp.life, swipe over the second card, it says message notes, and the text will be there as well as information, things that are up on the slides this morning. There's space for you to be able to take notes. So I want to go ahead and read this. And if you're able, would you go ahead and stand as I read our text this morning? Second Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes these words, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Before you have a seat, would you join me in this? We want to ask the Lord to illuminate our, our thinking, our minds. We want to be able to receive from him this morning what he has for us. You don't need to hear my thoughts or opinions on this text. We need to hear from the Lord. And so as I read this aloud, would you join me in reading the words on the screen? Let's pray aloud together. Oh Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love and strength to follow on the path you set before us through Jesus Christ, amen. You may have a seat. So as Paul begins this letter, he starts it with this word. He says, therefore, all right? And as you learned in English class, it is always helpful to say, okay, what is the therefore, therefore, right? Like maybe you remember that little trick that your teacher has taught you. And it is helpful to stop and say, okay, because we're not just, you know, maybe, you're, maybe if you're here for the first time, you're like, okay, I don't know what preceded it. But there's been this, you know, there's been this dialogue, there's been these things that Paul has been writing. And what he has just concluded at the end of chapter three is he's been writing to a group of people and he's like, listen, you live under, like there's this freedom to live in the spirit. There's this gospel of God's grace. You don't live under the old covenant. It's not about what you do, how you perform. So if you came in here this morning feeling beat down, maybe you don't measure up, maybe you're feeling like, 
can I even be at church? Because there's probably a group of people that have it all together. No, no, no. Paul's like, nobody has it all together but Jesus, all right? We all need God's grace, and so welcome. And he's saying, there's this old way of living, but now there's this new way. There's this new covenant. And he tells us then, in light of this new covenant, we have a new identity, we have a new purpose. And part of our purpose, not just for the Apostle Paul, but for all of us, is if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've experienced his grace, you actually are a minister of this new covenant. And so that's the language that he uses. He looked back at one to two. Therefore, he says, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And then he says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open, open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So I want to ask, as we just get going into the text this morning, all kind of building towards verse six, there's a few questions I think we could ask ourselves of these opening couple of verses that would serve as sort of a diagnostic to help us grapple with what Paul is saying here this morning. And so let me just put those before you and that'll kind of help set the trajectory of what we're gonna look at further in this text. But the first question to ask yourself that I need to ask myself, all of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you see yourself as a minister? Meaning, do you see yourself as a missionary? Do you see yourself as somebody who's been called by God as an ambassador? You can use a lot of different language there. And I don't mean minister in the official, like ordained sense and that sort of thing. What I mean is you're a person who has been commissioned by the Lord. If you're a Christian, you have a ministry, you have a calling. It may not involve being up on a stage on a Sunday morning, but it is no less important that every single person who's a follower of Jesus is called to be a, a minister of reconciliation, to be used by God in the places that he has put you. That where you work, the school you go to, the neighborhood you live in, a sports team you play on, or your kids play on, or whatever it happens to be, like none of that's by accident. It's all part of God's design. And you and I are called, we are sent people, sent to be ministers. So first question, like, okay, how are you doing with that? The honest answer, right, sometimes is like, I want to think of other people doing that. Like, okay, that makes sense for Paul. But he's saying, no, 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 like all of us. And then he asks us, though, he says, hey, we do not lose heart, all right, which gives us some insight into what ministry actually is like, right? And again, I don't mean vocational ministry, meaning you do this for your livelihood, you get a paycheck, that type of thing. Just the ministry, all right, sharing the good news of the gospel, trying to be a faithful witness, as Paul talked about being this aroma of Christ. He used that reference a couple chapters earlier, right? It begs the question, right? Sort of like, man, yeah, like this, it, it causes us to think this is difficult, um, Paul says we don't lose heart. That doesn't mean he never wrestled with that, all right? Like if you've never wrestled with losing heart in the calling that you have, it's worth asking yourself, am I actually even in the game? Am I actually answering that first question? Like, do you see yourself as a minister? Because when we do, when we seek to be faithful to what Christ has called us to, the reality is it is going to be difficult. Paul is dealing with, the reason there's this letter is because there are some difficult people that he's seeking to love. And he doesn't view himself as better than them. What we're going to see in this text, I mean, some of just the heightened sense by the time we get to verse six is because Paul clearly has in mind, it's like he's writing to a group of people while remembering how Jesus met him, how he encountered the risen Christ. And it just sort of results in just this heart of worship. He doesn't view himself as better at all. He knows hardship. He knows difficulty. Man, the book of 2 Corinthians, this letter, I mean, it's this kind of raw emotion that pours out. Paul's not, he's not sugarcoating. He's not hiding, hiding behind it. He's not trying to pretend like he's got it all together. He's like, this can be difficult. And yet he says, but we don't lose heart. Why? 
Why does he not lose heart? And it's tied there in the text because he says, by the mercy of God. Paul never got over the fact that it's only by the mercy of God that he had this calling. Are you and I marveling at the mercy of God? That each and every morning, as the scriptures tell us, like your mercies are new. Maybe you didn't feel that this morning. You're like, the alarm went off. It's, man, it's way darker than it normally is when you get up maybe, right? Or it's just like, I wish we had that hour of sleep. Or maybe you've decided, you know what? I don't know who I'm gonna vote for this fall, but whoever runs on the campaign of no longer changing the, the time, that's who I'm voting for, right? You're like a single issue voter when it comes to that. I don't know what your mindset is, right? But sometimes we can lose sight of the mercy of God and the scriptures tell us your mercy, they're new every single morning. So like welcome into it. You didn't exhaust God's mercy. You won't exhaust it today. It's overflowing his grace, his love for you in Christ Jesus. She says your mercy. Now, the reality is we sometimes, I'll speak for myself, I am so prone to forget this. I love the words of Sam Storms in his commentary, kind of a, really more of like a devotional uh, through the book of 2 Corinthians. He says this, how can I possibly lose heart, he says, when I deserve neither life, nor breath, nor opportunity, nor eloquence, nor a positive response on the part of those to whom I minister. Some good perspective there. He says, can you look at everything in your life and honestly say, it was by the mercy of God? If not, then he says, you are a likely candidate either for arrogant boasting or for discouragement and the disheartening frustration that breeds bitterness and resentment. Mercy is medicine for the discouraged soul and the recommended dosage is daily. I love that line, right? Mercy is medicine for the discouraged soul. I need to remember the mercy of God. I lose sight of the mercy of God. My soul grows bitter. The reality uh, for any of us, if we're seeking to be faithful to what God has called us to, to be ministers, to engage in this gospel ministry, like it can be challenging. And what we got to go back to is like what the Apostle Paul did. Hey, the recommended dosage is a, da it's a daily dose of remembering the mercy of God. And then did you notice what Paul does here as he continues? He says, we've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. And he says, what we give you is the open statement of the, the truth. He's like, at the end of the day, we are going to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. It may not be popular. It will seem foolish. All right. It seemed foolish to people back then. So if you and I think for a moment, you know what? I'm growing discouraged in ministry because it's a harder time. Paul didn't live in the secular age that we live in, da, 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 da. We can say all that. No, no, listen, it was exceedingly difficult in his time as it is today, right? There were difficulties there. There were people that thought he was an absolute fool, all right? The church in Corinth, like they would have been the least likely people to ever see like a church start. And guess what? God's grace broke in, God's mercy, all of that. And so Paul is referencing here, it's, this is, he's been doing this a couple times now, using different language. He's talked about those that are peddlers of God's word. And here he's speaking about, he says, we don't practice cunning or we don't tamper with God's word. Tamper, again, is that image there of what people would do when they would take a bottle of wine and they would water it down to sell it at, at full price. Paul's like, we don't play that game. We don't mess with that. We do not water down God's word. And the temptation for him in light of the difficulty of ministry would have been to water it down. The temptation for you and I in this time and place in which we live would be to water it down. Here's, let's just think practically for a moment. How popular is it today to say there's one way to God? 
It's through Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's one Savior. There's a real heaven. There's a real hell. There's one way. Like, that is not a popular notion. Talk about any number of those things. One way, hell, all, all of that, right? What about the Bible's sexual ethic, right? Like, we're not, like, as we study the Scriptures and we look, like, the Bible has things that it says that would be for our joy and to honor the Lord, like, all of that. That's not a popular thing to talk about, what about what actually happened on the cross where increasingly there are people that like, no, you know, God's son dying, like that seems like cosmic sort of child abuse. We don't want to talk about the atonement. Let's kind of change that. Let's make it, oh, it's one of the things that happened, but it's not the thing. And eventually it's just not talked about anymore. Like there's all sorts of things that are happening. And they were present back in Corinth. Go read 1 Corinthians. There's lots of things like theological knots to un untie and untangle, all right? And it's the same today. And Paul's like, listen, all I've got is the truth. And I don't want to be arrogant with it, all right? I know I've been a recipient of God's mercy. I'm not boasting in this. I just, in love, there's going to be difficult things that need to be said. And so that's what Paul's doing. So as we get into this, again, you ask yourself, do you see yourself as a minister? Have you grown discouraged? Even in that, like, are you willing to give people the, the truth to talk about it plainly, to actually open up the Bible and say, hey, I wrestle with this. I don't have all the answers. There's things that sometimes confuse me, but, but I know the grace that I've experienced and I know what Jesus says here. And I want to follow him, not just follow me, my heart, my feelings. I, I want to follow Jesus. And now where this text goes, though, and what we're going to see in verses three to four, Paul's like, okay. You may embrace your identity as a missionary and you might battle discouragement by remembering the mercy of God and you might be a person that's dedicated to the truth and yet find that the ministry is still hard going. Like it's still tough. There's still people that you've maybe been communicating the truth to, you've been praying for them and yet they continue to be indifferent towards what you're saying. They might mock what you're saying. It might cause all sorts of family drama, all sorts of different things that could be playing out. You might be the weirdo in the workplace that believes in, in Jesus. And the reality is we want to see more fruitfulness. We hope oh, if we just were faithful to this, like, okay, then there's just going to be this amazing fruit, this amazing harvest. And it doesn't always go that way. And Paul gives us some insight in these next few verses. He lays out for us like, hey, kind of what is the issue? What is the problem? There's more things that one could talk about. But he's like, hey, don't lose sight of this. So look with me at verses three to four. And this is not meant to discourage us, but rather to let us know like, hey, this is why we need one another. This mission is not easy. As we talk as a church of pointing our community to Jesus, it's one thing to give lip service to that. It's another thing to be like on the ground, invested in people's lives, talking to them, getting to know them, inviting them into your home, inviting just them into some kind of visibility into your life, inviting them into church, inviting them ultimately to know Jesus, like all of those things. And here's sort of what we're up against. So verse three says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled though to those who are perishing. Verse four, in their case, the God of this world, and he's speaking there of the enemy of God. He's speaking of Satan. He says, in their case, talk about another thing that's hard to talk about. You want to look like a fool? Just talk about, there's a real devil, all right? There's Satan. There's an enemy of God. People are like, what? It's in the Bible, all right? Um, but people may not believe that. In their case, it says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what Paul's saying is like, there's this veil. 
that is over the edge. So you go and you proclaim the truth, all right? You're doing the, this ministry, all of that. The reality is there is a veil that is there that is keeping people from seeing who Jesus actually is. Like that's the language that Paul is, is using there at the end of verse four, to see, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. People need to experience God. They need to experience and have an encounter with the living God that is Jesus. And yet there's this veil that remains. Now, sometimes the problem, people can think the problem is, right? We can, maybe our mind would go to, maybe there's something wrong with the gospel. Maybe that's not powerful enough. And I love the way John Calvin spoke of this. He says, the blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clearness of the gospel. For the sun is no less resplendent because the blind do not perceive it. Imagine how silly it would be, right? To be like, nah, the sun, it's kind of an issue with the sun. It's not bright enough and you're blind. It's like, no, 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 like you shouldn't be offering that critique, right? The sun is okay. The sun is doing its job. The issue lies with the person. So the blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clearness of the gospel. So what is it then? Then what actually is happening? And did you notice the language there that Paul uses when he speaks again at the start of verse four? And he says, he's talking about the veiling. He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's letting us in on this. Something Paul speaks of numerous times. That this whole idea sort of like this world we live in is sort of neutral. Neutrality is an absolute myth actually probably really propagated by the actual enemy to kind of keep us thinking that we're not up against something that's difficult. There is no neutral space. You're either with King Jesus or you're not, right? Now this isn't meant to say, okay, well, if you're not with King Jesus, then you're possessed by demons. That's not the language that's being used here, but it is saying you're either serving the kingdom of God, you're part of that kingdom, or you're part of the kingdom of the enemy, the kingdom of self that's leading to death and devastation, destruction, you're undoing, unraveling, more chaos. That's what's being communicated. This is why Paul would use the language in the book of Ephesians to another church he's writing to. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, he's telling them what their life was like before Jesus, following the prince, the power of the air. It's another way to say the enemy, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were children, sons of disobedience, and this spirit, this evil spirit that is now at work, the word there for work, it's just like this word where we get like energy, like this constant effort, energy, intentionality. There is an enemy who does not want Jesus worshiped. So you wonder why mission is hard. You wonder why ministry is hard. You wonder why it's difficult at times to see fruitfulness happening. Like there is a very real enemy that's seeking to keep people blind to the truths of the gospel. Paul would write just a couple chapters later, same book, Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The modern American West that we live in, the space that we inhabit, let's out. We don't like to talk about this, aside from maybe Halloween, right? I and mean, then it's just sort of fun and we get candy. Like what we're thinking about here. And what Paul is talking about is like, wait a minute, like if we could sort of zoom out and see, there are very real powers at play. Like there is a battle that is taking place. Do we recognize that? If we did, this is where Paul in Ephesians 6 is gonna say like, put on the full armor of God, right? Like we need to engage in this and not just individually, but collectively as the church because it's difficult and it's challenging. 
So Paul's saying this is what we're up against, that there's this blindness that exists because there is a very real enemy. And yet Paul doesn't say, well, you know what, like what's going to happen is going to happen. Just kind of wash our hands and just, well, we'll just trust God. Like he's like, no, no, you continue. You proclaim the gospel. You trust God in the midst of that is what we're going to see in verses five and six. But he's like, you continue to proclaim. So I want to ask a couple of questions here that I think would be helpful for us to wrestle through. Because the tendency of my heart then is to right away think, yep, okay, there's this veil that exists. There's this darkness. There are other people that they don't see clearly, all right? That there's this enemy that's at work in their heart and their life. But I'm a Christian, all right? So I don't have any of those issues. And that's just not true. Yes, the veil has been lifted. But even as a Christian, the reality is there is an enemy that's still trying to blind me to the glories of Christ. He ultimately won't be successful, but we still engage in this battle. So let me ask you a couple of questions here that I think would be helpful for us to wrestle through and maybe think through it in a couple ways. Maybe you're somebody that has never trusted in Christ, all right? Like, has the enemy completely blinded you? Are you completely veiled to the glories of Christ? And you need to have your eyes open. And that's where Paul's going to go at the end of this section that we're in. And maybe you're like, hey, I'm here this morning. I'm a follower of Jesus, right? But I bet there's more that the Lord has for us, that there might be things that we're not seeing clearly. So I referenced this earlier, Pastor Sam Storms and his commentary on 2 Corinthians. I thought this was a really helpful way to think about it, all right? Um, and if you're an optometrist that's here and I get these names incorrect, uh, just, you know, you can tell me afterwards, right? But he laid this out and he says, hey, let's think through this. There's a few different ways that we could think about it. For one, ask yourself, do you have spiritual myopia, all right? Or a nearsightedness would be another way to talk about it. Spiritual myopia looks like this. You are so consumed with just you and your world and it's, it's just the journey inward and it's all about you. It is selfish at its core. It's like, I can't see out there. I don't see the other need, needs of other people, all right? And you're like, well, I see the needs of other people. But like, is your disposition. Like, think about this past week. How often were you plagued by a spiritual myopia? Just a nearsightedness about, about me and my world and my things going right. If we're honest, that is far more prevalent. It's not just outside of the church. It's in here in the church. It's in your heart and it's in my heart. There's a very real enemy that wants to keep us sort of spiritually nearsighted. Or you might have the opposite issue, still very dangerous, the spiritual hyperopia, which is this idea of this is farsightedness. All the little twinkling things out there. All the things that look so appealing from afar. Like you can see that. You can see your neighbor's house that is better. You can see what they're doing. You saw what that person, post, that person posted on social media. And rather than rejoicing with those who rejoice, your heart began to be a little disgruntled and you felt a little less content than you did a few moments before that. Like you are not looking at your own heart and your own issues and what you need to repent of. All you're doing is you're looking out there and maybe you're jealous or you're looking out there at other people and you can see their problems and you can see what's wrong with them and how they should just you know, live more like you do or think like you do. That's a kind of a spiritual farsightedness. Is that where you're at? So another condition, a, a spiritual presbyopia, all right? I don't know if I'm saying that correctly or not, all right? But it's this idea that in the lens of the eye, there's less elasticity. Like it begins to get more hard and rigid and it lends itself to um, just less than what God would have for us and our ability to be able to see. And sometimes 
the tendency is the longer that we've been in the church, we grow a little cold, we grow a little indifferent, sort of that, that joy of our salvation that we once had begins to wane. Is that where you're at? So then we think about mission and we're like, hey, come in and enjoy my spiritual presbyopia, right? Like it's all rigid and cold and like, wait, what? Like I thought there's supposed to be this joy. Where do you fall on that? These are helpful questions to ask ourselves because the Lord has more for us. And if we're going to be the church that Christ has called us to be and to be able to minister to people, we have to see some of what this is, what's happening out there, that their people are spiritually nearsighted and farsighted and all that. But it also is still in my own heart. And the, the calling then isn't, hey, make sure you take care of all your spiritual blindness, make sure you get all that and then you'll be qualified to go out and do ministry. It's like, hey, the reality is we're gonna be wrestling with these things until Jesus comes back and sets everything right, all right? And yet it's helpful to just stop and say, oh man, like some of these things are, are happening. And where it's leading to is verses five and six, where Paul is like, okay, we've got this calling. We've got this purpose that the Lord has given to us. There is a very real enemy. And he, thankfully he doesn't just stop there. Cause if he stopped there, he'd be like, okay, this seems impossible, right? Like what he's doing is he's drawing our attention to what we see in five to six of ultimately what is the Lord's provision, the way the Lord provides for us so that we can actually proclaim, that we might actually have something to proclaim to people, to pronounce. And that's the idea of the gospel. It's a, being a herald of something that has historically happened. It is not good advice. Hear me on this, right? The calling of the church is not to go around and give good advice to people. That is not the gospel. That is a list of things that people have to do in order to improve themselves and it will kill them. The gospel, the good news, the her we're heralds of this thing is this has historically happened, that Jesus came, that Jesus lived a sinless life, that Jesus died in your place, that Jesus resurrected, that Jesus ascended, that Jesus is coming back. That has happened, that is a fact. And you can either get on with team Jesus or you can continue to live for self. But this has happened and the good news, the historical declaration is that he invites us in. And what happens here in five to six is Paul gives us some insight into how that actually takes place. So look how he begins in verse five. We, for what we proclaim, he's like, just to be clear, it is not ourselves. Praise God for that, right? Paul knew he had all sorts of still spiritual myopia, farsightedness, nearsightedness. He had all that stuff. He's not a perfect man. So he's not coming in and saying, hey, here I am. I'm God's gift to the, to the church, right? You're not God's gift to the church. I'm not God's gift to the church. What we proclaim, it's not ourselves. That's very freeing, isn't it? If we just start there, if you think about your call to be a minister of the gospel, all you get to do, all you have to do, what you're invited to do is tell people about how awesome Jesus is. Not, not you, not me, all right? For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Talk about just a summary of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. With ourselves, he says, as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then verse six, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. What Paul is inviting us to do, and this is what we want to look at in this last section together this morning, is maybe wrestle through this question. Ask us like, hey, when you think about being saved, when you think about being born again, whatever term you, you want to use, when you think about salvation, all right, 
what do, you, what do you think about when you think about those things? Like, how does that come about? What does that look like? And what's our role in some of that stuff, right? Big theological weighty matters. How do you think about this? And there was a theologian a few hundred years ago in the 1700s by the name of Jonathan Edwards, all right? So maybe you've heard of him. He's a Puritan thinker. is regarded by some as the, the greatest American theologian like we've ever had, all right? Um, part of the Great Awakening, um, all sorts of things. Wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Maybe you've heard of, of that, right? Um, just, you know, very high attractional church kind of stuff, right? And so um, how do you think about salvation? Well, he liked to think about these things. And in particular, he thought about salvation in these verses here out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, all right? Here was the title of one of his sermons about this, all right? This will not be the podcast this week. We're not titling it this way. But here was his title for this text. A divine and supernatural light immediately imparted to the soul by the Spirit of God shown to be both scriptural and rational doctrine. Whoa, sounds compelling, right? Like you saw that tweeted out this week. I got to get to church. I mean, that's what we're going to be talking about, right? That was his title as he wrestled through this. Now, confession I like and appreciate a lot of Jonathan Edwards. I like and appreciate more people who study him and then relay it to me in ways that I can actually understand, okay? One of those servants of the Lord who has done that, has really given much of his life to studying the work of Jonathan Edwards is another guy named John, a guy named John Piper. And years ago, 2003, he gave a talk at a conference, this Desiring God conference, kind of looking at this particular sermon talking about the life of Jonathan Edwards, what he was committed to, all right? So here we are, just to put it in context, right? We're in 2020. I'm talking about John Piper in 2003, talking about Jonathan Edwards from the 1700s, okay? So that's kind of what's, what's happening over, over the next few minutes. I don't think there'll be somebody, I don't think that line's gonna continue. I don't expect there'll ever be a, someone preaching, well, in 2020, Jamie Hart preached this, and then there was, the, I don't think, it probably ends here. But anyway, we'll go with this for a moment. So Piper is looking at, this particular sermon. And he's like, hey, what emerged, like what you see in these verses that Edwards was captivated by this, just the beauty and the wonder of like the glory of God, just caught up in the, this vision of who God is and what you particularly see here, like this divine and supernatural light. Like if we're gonna understand our mission, our ministry as Christians, as the church, all the hardship, the very real enemy, he looks at this and says, okay, let me unpack for you a few of sort of the levels or layers that are at work. And the foundational level, he says, ultimately, when we think about salvation, I think our tendency, my tendency is like, look what Jesus has done for me. The more foundational, like kind of bedrock, like the thing, right? Thankfully, it includes salvation for you and me and God providing away all of that. Yes and amen. But we got to go deeper than that that sometimes we stop just that, like, do you know Jesus as your personal savior? And just kind of, okay, cool, you guys, are, you and Jesus are great. And miss, no, there's something more foundational that's happening. And so as this text, as we look at this this morning, and what captivated Jonathan Edwards' vision was like, no, it's ultimately the more foundational level one, it's the glory of Christ. That's what's going on. Did you, you notice it? I mean, even a really fascinating contrast, just look back with me at verse four, where he's talking about the enemy, it says to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then when we get to verse six, let light shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts. And there's sort of this parallel thought to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there's an enemy that does not want us glorying in Christ, seeing the glory of Christ foundationally salvation 
Like what you and I have been saved for is the glory of Christ. That's it. Like that's primary. So Piper commenting on this, he says this, you cannot go beneath this. There is no deeper reality. There's no greater value than the glory of God in Christ. There is no prize and no satisfaction beyond this. When you have this, you are at the end. You are home. The glory of God is not a means to anything greater. This is ultimate, absolute reality. And all true salvation ends here, not before and not beyond. There is no beyond. The glory of God in Christ is what makes the gospel the gospel, all right? So foundation number one is that. Now, we're made for the glory of Christ, all right? We're made to experience his glory. So there is a, there is a problem. So the second level of what we see here is we have to then have the gospel. We have to have the good news, meaning like, what, how do we actually enjoy the glory of God? And coupled with this, there's very bad news and there's very good news. And the bad news is, is on our own, we can never do this. Like we cannot enjoy the presence of God because you and I deserve to be punished for our sins. So Edwards says it this way. And this is why he's sometimes hard to understand. You'll get this when you see the language here, right? But go with me for a moment. He's talking about the bad news. He says, if it be allowed that it is requisite that great crime should be punished with punishment in some measure answerable to the heinousness of the crime, because of their great demerit and the great abhorrence and indignation that they justly excite, it will follow that it is requisite that God should punish all sin with infinite punishment because all sin as it is against God is infinitely hateful to him and so stirs up infinite abhorrence and indignation in him. Right? A lot, lot of fun words in there, right? Hey, come to church with me. That's what we're gonna talk about. What's he getting at? You can't enjoy the glory of God. If, if that's like foundation, like you can't bring your sin to that. Like it has to be dealt with. And so what's so amazing is where Paul's gonna take us in just the next chapter is not only does Jesus pay for our sins, he also gives us Christ's righteousness. So it's not just like, all right, you're not punished, all right? All right, you've been declared like, okay, you can go free. But also you get everything that Jesus earned. This is why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. I know why this is so glorious. He's made a way through the gospel so you and I can enjoy the glory, the presence of God without actually dying. Like the presence of God, the glory of God, right? If you're like, I wanna see God's glory and you're not in Christ, like that's not a good prayer to pray, right? It's like, no, no, no. The glory of God, we can't handle it unless... We're perfect and spotless and we can be in the presence. That's only possible through Jesus. Like, okay, cool. So we've got the glory of Christ. We got the gospel. Now here's the reality. I bet you have shared with people, maybe even ad nauseum, those truths. And yet they still are resistant to it. Because at the end of the day, it's not enough to just know the gospel in sort of a propositional way. Like you need to know it personally, right? So ask yourself this. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ, like you might know some of the truths of the gospel. You might be able to talk about Jesus, his life, his death, resurrection. But just being able to talk about that does not make you a follower of Jesus. Satan can give you a very good Bible study on some of the propositional truths of the gospel. Do you know the gospel personally or just propositionally? It needs to be something more. 
And this is what's so glorious then about the last level and what Edwards talks about and where he get that really, really, got that really, really long sermon title, okay? It's about the shining of divine and supernatural light. I hope this encourages you. I hope this last point causes you to marvel at what Christ has done in your life if you're a Christian. I hope it frees you and I up for mission knowing at the end of the day, we're called to be faithful. We cannot change anybody's heart. You could know the gospel backwards and forwards and all the propositional statements and you can say them in the most eloquent way to somebody, but unless there's a supernatural light that awakens somebody, all right, breathes like new life, takes them from being dead and makes them alive, takes a heart of stone, replaces it with a heart of flesh that would beat for King Jesus, nothing's gonna happen. And this is where Paul goes. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. This is creation language. This is Genesis 1. The God who spoke into the darkness, in the chaos, said what? Let there be light and there was light. Have you ever tried to do that? Walk into a dark room, let there be light. Doesn't happen, right? You're like, oh, I got Alexa. Whatever, that doesn't count, right? Like, we can't speak. I've never been able to speak words and those sort of things happen, but God can. And why is Paul referencing this? Because he's like, this is what happens at this other level or layer of salvation. And it's meant, again, it results in not us feeling awesome about like, oh, look what we did, but rather all the glory going back to God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. If you're a Christian, here's what happened. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We were bound to an enemy who was trying to suppress it, trying to keep the veil there. And God said, let there be light and something in you awoke. This is Paul on the road, on the traveling to Damascus, on the road to Damascus. What does he see? He encounters the living Jesus. What is there? There's a light that happens. He's knocked on his backside. And he's converted in that moment. And maybe yours didn't feel that dramatic. Maybe for you, it was less of a light switch going on and more like this dimmer where it's like the room was kind of dark and bit by bit, it got more light. But it's some way, somewhere along the line, you went from darkness into light. And it's all because of God. You didn't think your way into it. You didn't pray hard enough to get your way there. You didn't walk the aisle just the right number of times. Finally, it clicked. It's that the Lord imparted his light. He shone the light of the gospel into your life so that you and I could see the face of Jesus. That's meant to stir in us this affection, not to make us complacent, but rather to spur us on in mission because I can't change anybody's heart. We go and we declare the gospel. And we ask, Lord, will you work? Will you do this now in the hearts and lives of other people? Will you shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? Will you let them see and experience the face of Christ Jesus? Edward says it this way, and we'll close. Men have a great deal of pleasure in human knowledge, in studies of natural things, but this is nothing to that joy which arises from the divine light shining into the soul. This light gives a view of those things that are immensely the most exquisitely beautiful and capable of delighting the eye of the understanding. This spiritual light is the dawning of the light of glory in the heart. If you're a Christian, this is what has happened. The Lord has awakened you. He's made you alive. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. I was, and he gave me a new heart. He gave me new life. He gave me, you're like, well, I got faith. Yeah, but that's even a gift. All of it, why? So that God would get his glory. And that we would be freed for mission to be able to go and say, pressure's off, man. Like, I just get to tell you about Jesus. 
So who do you know, I'll close with this question, who do you know who needs the shining of divine and supernatural light? I'm gonna lead us in a time of prayer before we get ready to participate in communion and the rest of our service. But I wanna pray, I wanna pray in two ways, all right? For one, where are you still kind of spiritually blind? Nearsighted, farsighted, maybe things kind of just grown old and crusty a bit, whatever it might be. I'm gonna lead you in praying for a moment that, that the light of the gospel would shine anew and afresh in your life. And then I wanna invite you to pray as well, just as you sit there quietly before the Lord, pray with a specific person in mind who needs the light of the gospel to shine in their life. If you're like, I can't think of anybody, then that should be convicting itself. Pray specifically, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member, a, a, a child of yours, a parent, a cousin, whatever it happens to be. So let's pray together and ask the Lord to work and we'll continue in our service. Father, thank you that you saw fit to send your son Jesus for your glory, for our joy, that, that Holy Spirit that you work in such a way that you shine the light of the gospel into our hearts. And God, I pray that you would hear the prayers of your people now. We want to grow in our awareness. We want the veil continually to be lifted so we might see more clearly that we might rejoice. And so let's take a couple moments now, church, and ask the Lord to help us see more clearly, to experience more joy, to experience more of God's glory. Take a moment and pray. Father, it's not just here in this room where we want to see more clearly. We want the light to, to go out from this place. We want to be used by you. We want to see people go from death to life. And we can't do that in our own strength. We need your help. And so church, let's take a moment right now and pray for somebody by name. Call their face to mind and pray that the Lord would shine the light of his glory, that they might actually have an, a knowledge of the gospel, that it would move from just knowing a f some mere facts about Jesus to actually having a personal encounter with him, a relationship with him. Pray now for your friends, neighbors, family members, whoever it might be. Father, thank you that you hear us. We ask, God, that you would move, that you would work in and through us, not for the name of Crosspoint, not for our own name or just to feel better about ourselves, but God, we want more people to worship you. God, I pray that you would do it for your glory. And God, that we would experience just a great joy in that. So thank you for hearing us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.